Well, this morning I invite you to look with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we uh, finally have opportunity to begin our series on God's calling, now what? In Matthew chapter 2. You can just hold that there. But here's really a question that each of us can ask when we wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror. We can say, why am I here? Why am I here? Each person, religious or irreligious, believer or atheist, old or young, each person seeks purpose in life. In fact, part of that beauty of being made in the image of God, part of the sacredness of humanity is that human beings are made with what we call individual agency. In other words, you understand what that means probably. It's the capacity to act independently and to make choices. God's intention for us is to choose the way of God, experiencing an on-purpose life, experiencing and expressing God's purposes in our world. So any fair-minded person of faith is going to ask the universal question, what is my purpose in the world? Now there are several factors that draw me to this series, to draw me to this idea of God's call. In my sabbatical this summer, I found myself reflecting on the call of God on my own life and thinking through that and, and wondering about all of that and celebrating some of that and thinking of that. In recent months, in genuine pursuit of wanting to live God's purpose in their world, I've had some people pursue me and talk to me and ask me, what is God calling me to? Asking that question. They're asking that as they're uncertain as to the what, but they're very certain as to the want to, which is wanting to follow God's call. Another factor is this. The church now lives under a cloud of suspicion and disregard as never before in my three decades of ministry. I'm fearful at times that the church has made an exchange that the church has exchanged the call and the purpose of God's kingdom for cheap imitations. Cheap imitations such as the culturally affirmed individualism of our day. Political partisanship. Self-serving power. We've exchanged God's call to his purposes. And I believe in these days, because of that, because of that cloud of suspicion even on the church, it demands that those claiming Christ as Savior or Christian as identity seek to follow the call to his purposes, to his kingdom as never before. And recently, one other factor, my spiritual director, Brother David Vryhoff, taught a series on discerning God's voice. And some of what he said helped fill in some blanks for me and affirm some other places that I've come to my own conclusions with. So over the next weeks, we're going to consider some general observations about God's call, asking God for each of us to be able to connect the dots in our own lives. But where do we start? Well, in his book, The Will of God is the Way of Life, Jerry Sitzer wrote these words. Discovering our calling can be like going on a journey. We discover what our calling is in the same way an artist paints on a canvas or a person falls in love. We learn by trying, by experimenting, by doing. Our calling is inseparable from our journey. In one sense, it is the journey. 
That's a good statement. Our calling is inseparable from the journey. And in a sense, it is a journey. It erupts, it finds its way in our journey. Now, many places in the Bible exemplify this understanding of the call of God as journey. But none, really, in some ways, better than this text of Scripture. This is the word of the Lord for us today from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, remember that? We celebrated that just a couple weeks ago. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to us today. Thanks be to God. Well, you might be asking, Pastor Jeff, are you going in reverse? Because here we are with the wise men. But this is not a closing Christmas chapter, actually. But rather, the the story of the Magi is the beginning of the adventure of Jesus impacting the world. Which which, which makes makes it a great starting point in the drama of God's call as journey. Because as we read through all of that, all we see is journey. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, there's no definitive answer to the duration of their journey. But if you read the larger context of Matthew's gospel, it's likely as long as two years. Since since that was the age of the children Herod tried to eliminate in hopes of removing the threat of Messiah to his rule. Turning to these ancient travelers, though, I think we can find some some core principles, if you will, we'll just call them that for now, in seeking to fulfill the journey of God's call on our lives today. Let's just call them um, the three R's of God's calling. Here they are. The first one is this. It's revelation. Now, that is, after all, the idea of the word we call epiphany which is the season of the year that we celebrate the wise men. In fact, we're in Epiphany, and technically we're in Epiphany all the way till we get to Lent. But it's the idea of revelation. It is clear, though, that there was a specific revelation to the Magi. Verse 2 says, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That's what they asked. 
This is where the living out the purposes of God in life and the world begins. I know it sounds basic, but I wonder if we just need to get back to basic as never before in our lives and in our world. And it's this, just as it was for them, this was the revelation. It begins with Jesus. It begins with Jesus as king. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? These sages had a revelation that caused them to focus on decentralizing self-interest and in turn moving away from self-interest alone with a focus on God's interest. What interests God? What happens when seeking Jesus and his kingdom becomes the soul's barometer to how we measure life? What happens? Maybe we all need to ask the question that Clayton Christensen asks his Harvard Business School students, which is this, how are you going to measure your life? How will you measure your life? You see, the prime focus for these travelers was not themselves or their importance. They were important people. That's very obvious. You can conclude that from the text. But their primary focus was not on themselves. Their focus was Jesus as king as their primary focus. Now, how does that change the way I view life? If I truly view Jesus as king, if I declare that, if I name that, if I identify with that, if I say that's what my life's about, how does that change my life? The starting point not being what I want or what I need or even what I hope for, but simply Jesus, simply Jesus Christ, regardless of what I get in return. We're going to come back to that. Revelation. The basic truth. The calling of God begins with Jesus. Secondly, there's a realization. We'll spend a little more time here. Not once, but twice, it is expressed in desire and it is expressed in practice. Not once, but twice. Verse 2 says, when they came there, they declared, we have come to worship him. Verse 11 says that when they showed up at the, the house where the toddler Messiah was, that they bowed down to that tod toddler Messiah and they worshipped him. Their entire journey, the entire journey was for this purpose. These Gentile seekers realized that the worship of Jesus Christ the Messiah was what life was to be about. It was connected to all of life. And that has been stated in different ways by great thinkers through time. Some of you are familiar with the Westminster Shorty, Shorter Catechism and the first question that's asked. What is the chief end of man? Another way to ask that is, is why am I here? What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What a thought, enjoying God. Forever. Isn't that a great thought? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what our purpose is. In the 16th century, Ignatius formulated what he called the principle and foundation. This is a summary. This is basically what he said. 
He said, I am created to praise, love, and serve God. Period. I am created to praise, love, and serve God. When we start thinking in those terms about life and about worship, this relocates worship from an act to a life. Worship goes from carving out an hour a week. Worship goes from spending some time reading some devotional place in the Bible. Worship goes from just having some act of even singing or praying or something like that. It becomes a life. Now the Bible gives us language about that, specifically about that. In fact, Paul says it this way in these familiar words from Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see how comprehensive that is? Body, mind, the whole person given over to God. What is true and proper worship? Well, the problem with that word worship is what we've made it to be, how we have come to recognize it in our world, what we think it is. We have often made it something for us to consume, to consume a worship service, to come and consume. We've made it something to stir us up, perhaps. Oftentimes, it's more of an emotional response than anything else. But the example of the Magi and the witness of Scripture and actually the testimony of all of church history brings the realization that worship involves all of life. Not just a compartment of my life, but all of life. It's a willful, long, lifelong endeavor. We saw his star when it rose, they said. And we have come to worship him. What do you hear when you read that? It is implied by the text that this did not begin this whole idea of worship. Their efforts in worship did not begin when they arrived at the house where the toddler Messiah was. The idea isn't that they suddenly became worshipers when they showed up at the house. Quite to the contrary. It was worship that motivated them. It was worship that fueled them. It was worship that led them. It was worship that kept them going. Sarah Wank recently said this, these wise men had been encountering and experiencing God at work before they ever reached the house. Their study and their investment had revealed God to them long before. They already knew they'd encounter a king and they were ready to bow in worship. I don't know if it's as important that you're ready to bow and worship on a given Sunday morning at this designated hour, but am I ready to bow and worship on Tuesday afternoon or on Friday morning or in that family difficulty or in that difficult decision or in that uncertainty or in that great joy of life? You see, that's what this becomes for us. How does this now, how does this idea, this, this realization of worship apply to your life journey right now 
right now, whatever's transpiring, whatever's happening, how does it apply right now? How is your life right now? How's my life right now an act of willful, sacrificial worship? Maybe I could ask it this way. How am I preparing on an ongoing basis to meet the King, Jesus, day in and day out? But the act of worship by the Eastern travelers does something else. It actually anticipates a time we all long for. These ancient travelers prophetically point to the time when we pray that God comes and makes all things right. In fact, they point to prophetically with their lives these words written in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Their lives point forward, far into the future that we all want to experience, where every knee, every tongue shall bow, everyone will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the framework of my life, of your life, is true and proper worship, our lives as well become prophets. We prophetically point to the ultimate reign of King Jesus. And we're called to that. That's part of the calling of God. Whatever we do, whatever we choose to do with the calling of God, if that's not part of it, then it's not from God. That's part of the call of God. We're called to that. That kind of worship guides us to the will of God, is what Paul says. He says this, this whole and proper worship helps us discern how we're to live our lives. It is in our sacrificial worship of the Lord where we are best positioned to discover his call on our life. It's not going to be me throwing open the Bible just once in a while and saying, God, tell me what to do. It's in this ongoing realization that all of my life is captured up in the worship of God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the realization. And of course, that leads to this third R, and we're just going to call it recognition. And I want you to notice a shift. Now, it doesn't feel like it here on January 16th, but we have just passed through one of the great seasons of great indulgence. That's the truth, right? I did some serious indulging over Thanksgiving through Christmas. I think it should be a special season marked out for us. Just call it the season of indulgence. So from Thanksgiving to Christmas Day, we indulge largely from food to gifts. And I think God celebrates much of that with us. I actually do. But I also think that that is the high water mark in the entire calendar year of consumerism. It's the high water mark, if you will. But these wise men, these magi, these Eastern, Eastern travelers, they are not about receiving. They are not about consuming. They are all about sacrifice and giving. They cause me to ask this question about myself. Jeff, what does your commitment and worship to Jesus actually cost you? What does it actually cost me? 
Someone gave me for Christmas a digital calendar of the people who, to pray for, a count prayer calendar, pray for those persecuted today in our world, around the world, for their faith in Christ. For some people in our world, their faith and worship of Christ costs them their life or costs them hardship and difficulty that we probably will never, ever know. You see, these wise men, they make me ask, what does my worship cost me? What does it cost you? The text says they brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we can drill down to all the meaning of the individualized gifts, but I think primarily it's a demonstration of the extravagant cost, the long journey, these gifts, and then maybe the marker of the greatest cost, they bow down to him. I mean, talk about a comparison, comparing these likely wealthy, intelligent travelers, these, these magi, comparing them to the shadow king Herod. Here they are with all their wealth, with all their brilliance, bowing to the king, Jesus. And as I look at all of that, as I think about this recognition about the call of God, they teach me this. They were not interested in what Jesus could do for their lives. They, weren't, they didn't care what Jesus could do for their lives. They were focused on how their lives could be all about and for Jesus. Let's get at it this way. Let me ask you two different questions. Two different questions. The first is this. What do I want from Jesus for my life? What do I want from Jesus for my life? Is that the question I'm going to ask, or is this the question? What do I want for Jesus with my life? What do I want from Jesus for my life? That's really a consumer question, isn't it? Or what do I want for Jesus with my life? That's a worship question, right? That's the differential. That's the difference. They were not coming to Jesus to see what they could get out of him. They were not, they were not treating Jesus as, as someone they can just consume from. This was not part of their own self-actualization plan. This wasn't part of their own um, focus on their spirituality. This clearly was not simply to have a transaction that took care of their souls. I love the way the message paraphrase puts it. It says, they opened their luggage and presented gifts. <laughs> I love that. They opened their luggage and they presented gifts. Because you see, their whole journey of calling was not about what they could get for themselves, but what they could give for Jesus with their lives. And that's at the heart of calling. But notice one more thing. We often want the call of God on our lives to be easy and predictable and certain. But more often than not, it is not. 
We look again at the wise men and it says they returned to their country by another route after they were warned. They went a different way. They shifted gears. It was not what they expected. In fact, the whole trip was not what they expected. They didn't go to Bethlehem first. They went to Jerusalem first. That's where kings go. But it wasn't what they expected. Everything shifted for them. We want to align the call with our lives as we expect or want our lives to be. But what Jesus said we should pray is this. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the wise men also remind me that following Jesus, following the call of Jesus, living out the call of Jesus can be costly because we are asked to do so in ways we don't expect, we don't anticipate. But that is the entry point into the call of God being the way of life for us today. Revelation. God's call begins with Jesus. Realization. It's realized through not an act of worship, but a life in worship. A life offered as worship. I don't have gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but I have Jeff. My life becomes the offering of worship. And then recognition. It may very well be costly in ways we cannot imagine, but it will be costly. The call of God will, period, count on it, be costly. So what are you hearing within your heart today? I'm going to invite the worship team to come now again. As I want to offer you this last encouraging word, there's one more thing that we must learn, that we do learn from the Magi. And that's this. We must see this. The Magi were never alone in their journey. They were never alone in their journey. It is clear in ways that obviously still remain mysterious to us that God was guiding them, God was leading them, God was prompting them, God was enabling them. That was the difference for them, and it's the same difference for us. It is their sincere, persistent, faithful, and sacrificial pursuit of Jesus in that God led them all away. And if I just give my life to a sincere, persistent, faithful, and sacrificial pursuit of Jesus, God will lead me all the way. So we too can have this confidence. We can have the confidence of living out the call of God in the journey of our lives as well. Because after all, it is true. Emmanuel, God is with us. Let us live out his call in our lives. Thanks be to God.